Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Good morning. Some of you I know are early risers, but when I got up this morning and looked over at the clock that was beside my bed and the first number was a five, I didn't feel like there would be very many people here. So I'm impressed. Thank you for coming. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be a little different than most times when I read scripture. Most of the time I have you stand in honor of God's word, but today I'm going to ask you to sit because I'm going to ask you to do something else. I'm going to ask you to use your imagination. Now, with the sun streaming in through that window, this is going to take some hard work, but I'm going to ask that you picture that you're in a dark place. And every time as I'm reading the word light comes, a candle gets lit, or a lamp gets turned on, or a curtain gets open, or a floodlight shines, or the sun bursts forth. From Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. From the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light shone For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. From John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then our passage for today in John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Will you pray with me? Dear God, in spite of the light streaming in through the window this morning, we know we live in a world that is dark. And we live in a world that needs the light that you are. 
We look around us and see places of war and conflict. We think of the conflict going on in Myanmar and the Middle East, but especially today we think of Ukraine. We pray that even in that place that is dark, that you would continue to shine your light, that you would place your people there with the gospel. We pray for protection. We pray for a solution. We pray for peace. We pray for light in a dark world. But dear God, we don't have to go the whole way to Ukraine to find darkness. There's darkness here in some of our families. And so we commit our families to you and this church to you that you would help us to share the light that we have. That the light would shine in such a way that the darkness would not overcome it. Dear God, this morning we ask that your Holy Spirit shine his light in our hearts as we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This is sermon number two in a series entitled, Jesus Speaks for Himself. The idea of Jesus speaking for himself is as opposed to what others say about Jesus, what others used to say and what they still say today. Last week, we addressed people's desire for God to meet their political goals. Last week, we found out that people were saying... Jesus agrees with my politics. And in this country at this time, we have two different parties that are both claiming that sentence. Jesus agrees with my politics. But we learned that Jesus is not interested in agreeing with our politics. Instead, we learned last week that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I come to give my life, and so that by partaking of me, you'll have life. I'm not here to be your king, because that's what they wanted. Well, today we're going to address another misconception, a a mistake that people thought when Jesus were trying to put words into Jesus' mouth. And the, the misconception that is out there today, most of you have heard, and perhaps some of you have even thought it or said it at some point. That misconception is... Jesus was a good teacher. In fact, Jesus was a very good teacher. And by implication, if nothing else, there are also other good teachers. And in our world today, there are people who don't follow Jesus at all that will agree and admit that Jesus existed, that he was a good teacher, that he offered helpful principles, and that if we would take his advice on how to live our life, that would be a good thing. How would Jesus answer that claim? Jesus, you're a good teacher. Let's let him speak for himself. First, we'll set the stage. Last week in chapter 6, we notice that Jesus and his disciples were celebrating the first of the three major feasts in the Jewish calendar. That was the feast of Passover. Passover was a major religious holiday because it celebrated their deliverance from Egypt, but it also was a major political holiday because it celebrated freedom and victory over Egypt. It was the first holiday on the Jewish calendar, and it took place in the spring, and if you could, you might want to go to Jerusalem and celebrate there, but it was okay if for the Passover you celebrated it in your hometown. And so Jesus and his disciples were, in all of last week's lesson, around the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum and Nazareth area. This week, 
We find out in chapter 7 that uh, the scene has changed from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, and it has changed from the, the Feast of Passover to the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was also called the Feast of Succoth, and it was in the fall. And this feast was a really big deal, and if it was at all possible, you wanted to get to Jerusalem for this feast. Because after all, Jerusalem's a long way away. It takes a long time to walk there. But this festival was a week long, so travel was worth it. It involved a significant commitment of time. During this week-long celebration, you lived outside. You and your family and the neighbors, everybody built these small booths or tents or shelters, whatever you want to call them. And and ideally, they were to be made out of tree branches. But if you still celebrated in your house, you would decorate a room with tree branches to make it look like it was outside. But you lived outside for the whole week. And during that week, you celebrated. You celebrated two things. Hopefully, you celebrated a bountiful harvest because it was in the fall. And secondly, you celebrated the... God's provision as the children of Israel wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. This was a very joyful time. And it was always building up and it was building toward that final day. And the final day, everybody that could make it was in Jerusalem. And they lit these four massive lamps in the temple. And lamps isn't really the best word for it. They were like giant candelabras on tall poles and they lifted them up in the middle of the courtyard and the people stayed all night and it was bright light and there was feasting and there was dancing and in chapter 8 in the middle of this in the largest courtyard in the temple with lots of people Jesus stands up and says I am the light of the world and he appropriates for himself that symbol that was most meaningful Now, when we hear that Jesus said, I am the light of the world, we say, okay, that sounds good. I'm not too surprised about that. After all, nearly every religion in the world claims that light is a meaningful symbol. The Hindus, they celebrate Diwali. That is their festival of light. It celebrates the victory of good over evil. Jews today celebrate Hanukkah, their festival of lights. Chinese Taoism has the yin and the yang, the interrelationship and conflict between light and dark, two opposite but equal forces. And in perhaps what is the most popular religion in America, Star Wars, we have... (laughs) You guys are so unpredictable. (laughs) You have the force, the light, against the dark side. It seems that every religion has the importance of light. And now Jesus claims light's important, and that's that's nice. No, it wasn't. Because what Jesus was saying was something very different, different. You see, in Christianity, God is not represented by light as a good force and Satan as the equal but opposite dark force. There's no equal anything. God is the Lord of both light and dark. 
Chapter one of verse three of Genesis, God created the light. Verse four, God divided the light from the darkness. Jesus was involved in creation. He was there, and so by the time we get to John chapter one, it says, in Jesus there was no internal struggle between light and darkness to see which would win out. Jesus in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and it shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. So when Jesus stands up in the temple courtyard and says, I am the light of the world, he is making a radical claim that is not something we can take casually. And if you only get one thing out of this whole message today, that's what you need to get out of it. The claim, I am the light of the world, is not something that can be taken casually. Jesus did not intend it to be comfortable. Brother, he intended it to be an exclusive claim, a unique claim, a bold claim, a claim that would divide people. In the midst of that assembly, Jesus was claiming to be the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and the King of kings. And so to those who would say, Jesus, you're a good teacher, he would say, that is simply not an option. But his opponents got it. They understood it the way he meant it. He, they understood it exactly as he intended. For in John chapter 8, verse 13, the very next verse it says, the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. In essence, they were saying, Jesus, you're a liar. You're lying. That's too broad a statement. That's impossible. That's offensive. No one can be that exclusive. But check Jesus' response. He's not interested in winning friends or just being a good teacher, verses 18 and 19. He says to them, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father sent me, bears witness about me. And they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. I'm like, wow, what a way to talk to the most powerful people in the land. You could use them as friends, Jesus, but you've just alienated them. Well, predict how the Pharisees are going to respond when Jesus talks to them that way. Well, we don't have to think hard. The result is exactly what we expect. It says they want to be rid of him, but we're told in verse 20, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So today we're told Jesus is a good teacher, one of many. And to us today, Jesus says, nope, I am the light of the world. 2,000 years ago, they didn't accept that message. What about today? It's essential that we consider this statement today and its implications. What did Jesus mean when he said it? What does it mean to me? What do we think about it? How will we respond? So for the rest of this morning, we're going to answer three questions. We're going to give three questions and answer them that may help us. First question, what does Jesus mean when he says he is the light of the world? The answer, what he means is he is the only one who can bring enlightenment. Now, in a way, it could be argued that enlightenment is a weak word here. Maybe I could have said he is the only one who brings life, or he is the only one who brings hope, or he is the only one who brings truth, or maybe I should have spoken about something eternal. But I've chosen to use the word enlightenment because of what it has come to mean in our society today. So many people talk about enlightenment, 
being enlightened. It's important in religion today. It's important in many more things. The term enlightened is used to describe a new baseball coach's technique or a new teaching method of a university professor. Enlightened is used to describe any number of new products or a new author. Jesus would say, only one is truly enlightened, me. In a world that desperately needs the light, Jesus says, I'm it, and I'm the only one. Notice he doesn't say, I bring light. He doesn't say, I shine light. He says, I am light. So Jesus exclaim, or Jesus' um, comment here is exclusive. He says, I'm not willing to be just your spiritual advisor. I'm not your go-to guru. I am not willing to be your life coach. I am more than the counselor you are seeing at the moment. I refuse to be a portable idol that you can move around and manipulate to fit your quest for self-actualization. I'm not just a good teacher. Jesus' claim is far more demanding and authoritative. I am the light of the world. Follow me. Which leads to the second question. What does it mean to follow that light? And our text helps us. Verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the answer number two to question number two, what does it mean to follow that light? To follow that light means to actively move away from the darkness. Have you ever tried walking in darkness? It's difficult. It's scary. It can be painful. I found out this week. Mike Aker and I were walking around the church looking for something. And I found it in a stairwell that was dark as I tripped over it. We don't like being in the darkness. We cannot encounter Jesus and experience the splendor and beauty of his light and stay in the darkness and stay where we are. Why would we want to? When we encounter Jesus in this way, we must follow wherever that leads, even if that is unknown. I'd like us to consider the Jews from the book of Exodus this morning. You remember the story. As they leave Egypt after the plagues, we get to chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. It says this, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire that gives them light so that they might travel by day or by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night and it did not depart from the people. You know, they might not have known where they were going next, but wherever the pillars went, that's where they'd be. And once they had experienced the light, there was no returning to Egypt. But unfortunately, our temptation, once we've seen all the advantages of the light, should be to follow, but sometimes we go and play in the light. And we enjoy the light. And we take advantage of the things offered by the light and then we return to what we know and where we came from, where we've been comfortable, that is, in the darkness. And this is only natural because everyone here was born into darkness and there's a desire to stay with what we're comfortable with. But Jesus says, 
that's impossible. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And he tells us to get out of the darkness because that's really where we are. Not in some theoretical sense, but we are practically speaking in darkness. We are like the Pharisees. So there's a third question that we must answer. Third question, how do we actually follow the light of the world? This answer has at least two parts. The first one is found in our text. In verses 23 and 24, he's speaking directly to the Pharisees. We think of anybody, the Pharisees should be the one that understood the light, but they didn't. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So how do we actually follow the light of the world? First of all, we begin a relationship with Jesus. We call this conversion. When I was a child, I was told I needed to accept Jesus into my heart. You ask him to be your savior. And I'm not, I'm not going to argue over what's the best terminology, but the truth is we need to move from darkness into light. I remember when I was six years old, six years old, I was responsible to, in faith, trust that what Jesus said was true. And I remember as a six-year-old surrendering my life, however I was able to do at age six, to him and to the truth of what he said. You're responsible to make that decision too. Notice in the very next chapter, Jesus meets a young man, a young man who has been blind from birth. He is literally in darkness. And Jesus repeats to him in chapter 9, verse 5, I am the light of the world, and then heals his eyes so he can see, but also heals his heart, and he believes. And he follows Jesus in verse 38. He worships, and this all makes sense because he would say, if Jesus is right and what he says is true, I'd be foolish not to want what he's offering. And that's true for all of us. Yes, Jesus' claim is exclusive. But that's a good thing. Because if Jesus was just one more good teacher and salvation in heaven were based on following his teachings and I would try to do it, I'd be trying to earn it. It would be something that I could brag about, look and see what I did and I'd be tempted to boast. But since it is exclusive and since he's the only way and it's all about what he's already done and it's about grace and it's not about me, guess what? There's no room for me to boast. So I need to stop here and ask, is this first answer to this question the one that you've already taken care of? How do we actually follow the light of the world? We begin a relationship with Jesus. Have you done that? You know, I'd love to think that everybody in this room has, but I would doubt that's true. If you're here today and you have not taken that step of faith and begun a relationship with Jesus, that's where you need to start. I'd ask that you come talk to me after the service and I'd be glad to share with you about that. But if you say, yes, I've already done that, I've begun a relationship with Jesus Christ, then we can move on to the second answer to actually how do we follow the light of the world, and that is to repent of sin and grow in righteousness. 
chapter 8, verse 12 says, we will not walk in darkness, but we will have the light of life. What are the effects of light? We're going to close this morning by looking at three of those effects. And they're going to help us answer that question, how? How do we follow? First, the first effect of light, it shows us what is previously hidden. I would like to take you into a, a closed room that is dark and unused, and as you open the door, there's a nine-foot black Grand Steinway piano right there. It's gorgeous. At least you think it's gorgeous until somebody goes across the room and opens the curtain, and the light comes in, and you see the top of that piano has dust on it. You go over, and you, you shouldn't, because it looked worse as soon as you do, but you touch it. And now you can't, now you need to clean the piano because now this beautiful piano doesn't look quite as beautiful as it did just a little bit ago because you realize it's covered with dust. Hear what Paul says about that experience. Ephesians chapter 5 Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. As I have a relationship with Christ... His light shines in my life and shows me areas that I need to change. And I need to repent. As you have a relationship with Christ, that same thing will happen to you. And you will need to respond to that light appropriately and to repent. And I don't know what it is in your life. It might be some words. It might be some thought patterns. It might be actions. It might be habits. But those of us who are in Christ need to repent. You know, the more we hate the deeds of darkness, the more we love the light. First effect of light, it shows us what is previously hidden and we need to repent. Second effect of light. I'm going to ask you to think back, I think it was nine days ago now. Do you remember that first day this year when it got into the 70s? And it was a sunny day. I mean, I hope you got outside. But Patty and I, we just had to get outside and we were out walking around and it was 70 and we're just basking in the sunshine and the ice is melting and the snow was almost gone. And I rejoiced because for the first time I saw new buds already pushing up through this year. Light brings growth. Light gives signs of life. So also with Jesus, light You will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. We need to grow. We need to change. Uh, Paul is talking to a younger man, Timothy, about his growth. In 1 Timothy 6, he gives him instructions on how to live. And listen to the terms he uses. Flee from sin. Pursue righteousness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. Keep the commandment. And then he says this. Thinking of the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ who dwells in unapproachable light. 
as we stay close to Christ, who is unapproachable light, we are able to flee from sin, pursue righteousness, fight the good fight, take hold of the eternal life, and keep the commandment. Christ's light makes a difference in my Christian life today. So light shows us what is previously hidden. We should repent. Light brings growth, so we should grow. Third result of light. You want to share it. We've already seen that Jesus did this in the very next chapter. I am the light of the world. He heals somebody, giving them the light. One of the results of our encounter with Christ, if he is the light of the world, is that we should be sharing it. This is why Paul said in Romans, I am under obligation to share. I am a debtor to share. I have the gospel. They need it. I want to share. His argument wasn't sharing the light is not just a good idea. It's a moral obligation. And I would say in this society, in some ways, it's a legal obligation. Out of order. It's a legal obligation in this country if you have the light and someone is in a ditch or in a place where they're going to hit something in the dark, you need to shine the light on there so that they can avoid being injured. Are you willing to share the light? Jesus is the light of the world, and that light is life. Do you have it? Can you share it? As a result of today's sermon, some of us might want to begin a new relationship with Christ. Some of us want to repent. Some of us want to grow. Some of us want to share it. But we cannot stay the same. Let's pray. Dear God, even though we didn't know that we needed you, you became light for us. And we rejoice that you did that and that in you not only do we have light, but we have life. Life that's meaningful here today, but life that is eternal with you. Thank you for that. Help us to respond appropriately today to the life that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.